morning, everybody. I'm Jared Kirk. How are you today? Awesome. <laughs> We're starting a new series called uh, You Asked For It. Before we get into that, I want to point out you were handed a program when you came in here today. Pull this out. There's a couple of things for you to interact with. The first thing is the connection card. I would love for everybody in here to go ahead and take this out and fill it out over the course of the next 25, 30 minutes or so. Fill out whether you're a first-time guest or a regular attender. If you come here every single week, just put your name on there, an email address, and a prayer request. Uh, as a staff, as a prayer team, we love to pray for you. There's also some next steps that I'm going to ask you to take or at least consider taking at the end of the message today. So keep that in your hands. The other thing is your message notes. You're going to need these right about now for the message in the, in the series, for the message. Take that out. Uh, and the other thing is the community group catalog. This was on your seat when you came in. There is one week until community groups start, and I'm super excited about my group. It, it is, uh, it's going to be outside in a park because when summer happens in Boston, what justification is there for meeting inside of a house when you are stuck inside of a house for six straight months. Can I get an amen? You know what I'm saying, right? Like, so my group's going to a park, and we made it so that if you have kids, you can bring your kids and be a part of that. You don't have to have kids, but it's fenced in. There is parking, and there are bathrooms. Therefore, it is kid-friendly. So that's that. Now, today is uh, the beginning of our series, You Asked For It. And for me, this is a really special sermon series because it was born out of this idea. I live on a street in Boston called Thwing Street. And I love my neighbors on Thwing Street. They're such interesting people. There's, a, there's a, a French artist who works at the MFA. His uh, wife is a retired dancer. There's Rashmi and her husband, Ed, and their, and their little girl. And they're just like the sweetest people God ever made. My next door neighbors who are, um, like I love my neighbors so much. They're just such great people. And our kids play together. And... Um, I, I, I wanted to speak as a church to do a sermon series that, that I felt like they would feel comfortable coming to, like that would actually address the questions that they have. Because I want, part of what I want to build as a church, just speaking as a pastor for a second here, I want to build a church for Thwing Street. Like I want to build a church that my neighbors want to come, and when they come, they may say, I don't believe what you believe, but at least that was interesting. It was honest and respectful, and we can have a dialogue about what happened there. It was at least understandable for me, that it wasn't just so much Christian speak and Christianese that they don't even know what's happening, right? Like, that's what I want to build as a church. So I asked you guys, hey, what topics do you want? What topics do you think your friends would want addressed? And that's where, <coughs> excuse me, that's where you asked for it came from. Now, this week, we're talking about um, why God would, why a good God would allow suffering in the world. And so philosophers have been debating this and working on this for, you know, a couple thousand years. So I thought I'd give, a sh give it a shot in about 30 minutes this morning. And we'll see how we do. But my guess is you've wrestled with this question before in some way. Sometimes it's phrased like this, why, why do good things happen to bad people? That, that's essentially an expression of the, the same thing. Right, if God is so good and so powerful, why does life seem so unfair? Why is there suffering from natural disasters? Why does my grandmother get cancer and pass away? She's the best person I ever knew, right? Like, this becomes so real to us. Some of you have dealt with it on a very philosophical level. You went to college, you went to school, or you just, you've been watching videos online on YouTube, you've been, you've been interacting with thoughtful people through podcasts, and you, you want a philosophical answer like, if God is all good and all powerful, how is there so much suffering in this world? And for others of you, this is not philosophical at all. This is God 
if you are as good as you claim to be and you're as strong as you claim to be, then you never would have let that happen to me. But either way, we're dealing with the problem of evil and suffering in a world in which God is good. And let's start with what the Bible actually says about God. The, the, the classic, they call it the trilemma, which is that if God is all good and God is all powerful and yet suffering exists, therefore either God's not good or he is not powerful or maybe he just doesn't exist. The Bible does say that God exists and that he created this world. Genesis 1, 1 through 2 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. The Bible makes the claim that God is responsible for that which is, that he is the essence and the ground of all being. He is the unmoved mover. He is the self-actualizing actualizer, that God is... um, God is the source of all being, and he created this world. The Bible also says God is perfectly good. I just picked a, kind of a random verse because there's so many that talk about this in the Bible. Psalm 119.68 says, of God, you are good and do only good. I thought that one was clear enough. So why then is there so much suffering in this world? Well, I'm going to give you five reasons today to believe in a good God despite the presence of suffering and evil in this world and despite the presence of suffering and evil in your life. And the way that it works is that these are good reason, these are reasons why a good God could exist. They're not philosophical airtight arguments. So you're not going to hear one argument and say, well, he solved it. They couldn't do it in the last 2,000 years, but good work, Pastor Jared. Uh, if I did that, you'd have to give me a raise. That would be just absolutely required if I solved the problem of evil here this morning. No, it's more like this. I sometimes do premarital counseling with young couples. And one of the questions I always ask them is, why do you want to marry each other? And hopefully they give me some good reasons. Now, each reason may not be sufficient on its own, but if you stack enough good reasons together, it paints a compelling picture. And so they'll say things like, well, we love each other. Well, that's a good reason, but you don't have to marry everyone you love. Or maybe they say, we want to have kids and start a family. Well, that's another good reason. But if you said, like, I don't love this person, but I really want kids, that's not a good enough reason to get married. If they're a young Christian couple, they may say, we are really looking forward to the sex. Again, that's a great reason to get married. That is, but if that is your only reason for getting married, that's a problem. Men, I am talking to you. You know what I'm saying? So that's how these reasons work. They stack on top of each other and overall create a compelling case to believe in the existence of a good God despite the suffering and evil that we see in this world. Now, before we dig into the five reasons, and I have kind of a word to guide our thoughts on each one of those, I want to start by inviting us all to take a huge dose of the humility pill because we're we're talking about why God might allow something. (coughs) Excuse me. I got allergies. Anybody else? Oh, man, it's, it's rough. Judith, me and you. Sorry, babe. So, um, we have to start with humility. Because I can't know your reasons for doing something. You can't know my reasons for doing something. How could we possibly know God's reasons for doing something? So we're essentially searching for and looking for plausible reasons that God would allow this. Ravi Zacharias wrote a book with a guy named Vince Vitale called Why Suffering? And this message is largely derived from that work. It kind of gives the bones and the structure to this message. And he talks about the necessity of humility. Here's a a quote from him that's in your notes. He says, it takes an extraordinary amount of confidence in one's intellectual abilities to claim, I know the sort of world God should have created. Isn't that a claim to self? 
Personally, I find myself wanting to be very cautious when I start making claims about what sort of world God should have created. <coughs> My experience of universe creation is zero, so I just don't know that much about what universe creation takes or about how all the good possibilities and all of the bad possibilities hang together. With that in mind, here are five reasons to believe in a good God despite suffering. Nicole, if you're in here, could you please get me a glass of water? <laughs> Emily's already on it. Thanks, Em. <coughs> All right, let's look at him. First, number one, freedom and love. <coughs> Kathy, it's okay. <laughs> Is that a throat lozenge, Kathy? Thank you. <laughs> Kathy, you are nothing if not prepared. I'll save that for later. The first reason, freedom and love. I said I was going to use one word, but I cheated. Freedom and love. Write that down in your notes. That should be on the inside of the front cover. According to the Bible, God is love. <clears throat> now, that is a uniquely Christian claim about the nature of God. And it makes sense because the Christian claim about God is that he is three persons in one God. He's a trinity. And so the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one of love from eternity past. Now, this, is, this, is, this actually makes sense. If you think about human beings, you have a, a right brain and a left brain. You have two lobes in your brain. They're, they're, they're connected by the corpus callosum. And in a very real sense, you have two consciousnesses within yourself that interact by talking to each other. And through the interaction of the right brain and the left brain, you have this incredible computing power to predict the future and analyze the past as a human being because they're interacting and talking with each other. So we have already the framework for a suprapersonal being. That's essentially what God is. He's three persons in one God in a relationship of love from eternity past. <coughs> so I'm sorry, guys. First John 4, 8 says this. But anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Again, just trying to find some Bible verses that hit the nail on the head this morning. If you're looking for a claim from the Bible that God is love, there it is. God is love. He is love in his nature. He does loving things. So it stands to reason that one of the reasons God made this world is because of love. He wanted to love this world. He wanted to love people. He made you because he wanted to love you. He wants us to love each other. But this is where the possibility of suffering enters the world because love requires freedom. Love requires choice. So if you create someone who must love you, is that love is essentially the question. If there is no choice involved in it, is it love or is it just programming? Um, now, this isn't something that's unique to me. As great of a mind as Jean-Paul Sartre in his work Being in Nothingness says this, the man who wants to be loved does not desire the enslavement of the beloved. He is not bent on becoming the object of passion which flows forth mechanically. He does not want to possess an automaton. And if we want to humiliate him, we need only to try to persuade him that the beloved's passion is the result of a psychological determinism. The lover will then feel that both his love and his being are cheapened. If the beloved is transformed into an automaton, the lover finds himself alone. <clears throat> or in the words of the great 90s rapper DMX, if you love someone, let them go. If it comes back to you, it's yours. If it doesn't, it never was. Turn to your neighbor and let them know if you've ever heard of DMX. <sighs> Thank you.
basically love requires the freedom of choice, and wouldn't you know it, this is exactly how God set up <coughs> the system with the very first human beings. Genesis 2, 15 through 17, the Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it, but the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat of the tree of uh, the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and if you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now, have you ever wondered what's up with that tree that God put in there? It might as well be called the tree of disaster because that's, that's what happens. Why does God set up a scenario in which he creates this perfect garden in the Garden of Eden and then lets a snake into it? And then on top of that, he puts a tree there, and he's like, hey, by the way, if you eat from this tree, it's all going haywire. Because God is introducing an element of choice to the first people so that they can choose to love him. See, God's value of love creates freedom. Freedom creates the possibility of suffering and evil in this world. So follow the logical chain here. Perhaps one of the reasons that there is suffering and evil in this world is that God so highly values love and freedom of choice that it is worthwhile to him to have the possibility of suffering and evil so that there can be expressions of love and freedom. So suffering is the natural result of God setting up a world in which people can freely choose to love him or not love him, to love others or themselves. The positive good of love and freedom is one of the five reasons to believe in a good God despite suffering. Reason number two, grace. Write that down, the word grace. This is the most interesting argument for me today. You might wish for a different world than the one we have now. You might say to yourself, if I were in charge, you know what I would do? I would make a world in which there was less suffering, less evil, less natural disasters, more love, more positivity, more good. You might say, if I was in charge, I would set things up differently, but there's a catch. If you wish for a different world than the one we have now, you are essentially wishing yourself out of existence. Because everything in this world is conditional on the world that we have now. <clears throat> uh, maybe an illustration might help. My grandmother uh, lived during World War II, and she was single. And so uh, her and her friends started writing letters to the Jewish soldiers who were serving overseas in World War II. And she wrote to one soldier named Albert, and he wrote her back. And they'd never met in person before, but they're just writing. So they write all these letters. Letters turn into love letters. And Albert comes back home on a two-week time off from the military back to the States. And in that two weeks, <clears throat> Leona meets Albert. They fall madly in love. They get married. My mother's born, and then I'm born. And so it's really not an exaggeration to say without World War II, my grandmother doesn't exist, my mother doesn't exist, I don't exist, right? The existence of ourselves and all the people that we love is conditioned on the exact world that we have now. Or think of it another way. If you were to just miraculously remove all the evil and suffering from the world right now, could you even be, really be, uh, would it be true to say that you are still you if you hadn't been through any of the things you've been through? if you never experienced any suffering, if you never experienced any evil, you never overcome anything, could you realistically be said to be you anymore? No, and so for, in wishing for a different world, <coughs> you're wishing yourself out of existence. Now, this is a very biblical idea that the, the, before the world was made, God had specific people in mind that he wanted to love. 
Psalm 139, 16 is one of the places we see this. It says, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. We call this point grace because God in his infinite grace wanted you to exist and he wanted your parents and your grandparents and all of your ancestors to exist because he wanted to love you and call you into a relationship with himself. And so it's, it's very possible that one of the reasons we see this specific world that we see now with all the pain and evil and suffering in it is because God wanted to create a world in which you exist and he can love you and have a relationship with you. Vince Vitale, or Vitali. I don't know how you say a good Italian name like that. Nicole will have to fill me in later how they say that. How do they say that in Jersey? Anybody know? I'll work on it. Here's what he says. What kind of world we think God would create and sustain depends on what we think God would value. What if one of the things God values, values greatly and unconditionally is you? What if he valued a world in which you would exist and in which your parents would exist and your grandparents and your ancestors before them? Suppose he wanted them. Suppose he wanted a world in which every generation in every part of the world is made up of people he has chosen because he loves them and desires to call them into a relationship with himself. We think we wish God had allowed a different sort of world to exist, but in doing so, we unwittingly wish ourselves and those we love out of existence. So the second reason to believe in a good God despite suffering is God's grace. Number three, morality. Morality. This is uh, the most complicated argument to me, but I'm going to do my best with it. <coughs> and there might be a few philosophy nerds out there that this is going to be like the best five minutes of your year. The rest of you, I, I'm just going to apologize in advance. I, I'm going to do my best here. What we call the trilemma, which was posed about God being all good and all powerful, and yet suffering and evil exist in this world. It uses, it makes a case against God using morality. God is good, and yet evil things happen. So it's using these moral categories to make an argument against the existence of God. Traditionally, in human society, morality has found its grounding in the existence of God. Why are particular things good or evil? Because in reference to God's nature, they are either good or evil. Morality needs a grounding point. If you don't use God as the grounding point of morality, you're left with the most likely candidate being evolutionary biology. So like, why is something good? Because it tends towards the promulgation of the species. Why is something bad? Because it tends against the promulgation of the species and the reproduction of the genetic material. However, you cannot get from a morality that's based on evolutionary biology if, if, let me put it this way. If evolutionary biology is your starting point, you cannot end up at morality. You cannot end up, um, you, can, you, can, you can describe what is, but you cannot describe what ought to be. And so then the comparative values between cultures become impossible to arbitrate between. Like um, in some cultures, they, they love their neighbors. In other cultures, they eat them. trying to decide whether I think I can pull, pull this off or not. Um, uh, 
uh, yeah, okay, so let me just, let me, let, me, let me say it like this. So if evolutionary biology is the starting point of your, of your moral framework, right, then it, it, it does tend to lead you very logically to places like eugenics experiments where you're trying to purify the genetic code of the people who live in order to promulgate the DNA of the species the, to the best of your ability. And I, I think, my opinion, is it is incredibly difficult to argue against that reasoning if evolutionary biology is your starting point. And this is exactly the reasoning that was tried and worked out in the 20th century in a variety of places, including America. So I think that the, the core of this argument is that none of us use or interact with morality in such a way that we are acting like evolutionary biology is actually the starting point. We use and interact with morality in such a way that we believe that it has this objective reality that there is true good and true bad and that we would say some things are just objectively wrong. We say slavery, that's evil. And even though the majority of, of human cultures throughout human history have practiced slavery, the vast majority of them, and have said, yeah, no, there's nothing wrong with this, we would say, no, that's wrong. You say, why? Well, if you want to have a consistent grounding for your morality, you would say, well, because people are made in the image of God. And so if you're a person of faith who believes in God, then you have more consistent reasons for the morality <coughs> that you actually practice. Okay, so let me move forward so we're not here all day. Believing that things are objectively good or bad is exactly what the Bible says we should expect of people if they are made in the image of God. So Romans 2 says, even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it without even having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. So in sh the, 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 the condensation of this argument is that you cannot use the moral categories of good and bad as an argue, argument against God because without God, you don't have the morality that you need to make a case against God. It's sort of like this. Uh, you and I are in a room together, and there's a big toolbox there. And I give you a bunch of tools out of the toolbox, and then you use the tools in your hands to tear down the toolbox. And a third friend of ours comes in, and he goes, guys, listen, I'm trying to figure out whether toolboxes exist or not. And I say, yes, toolboxes exist. And you say, no, toolboxes do not exist. You say, toolboxes don't exist, but you're standing there holding tools in your hands. See, that's what happens when you use morality to make the case against God. So your morality is the tool God gives you to use. So to use it against him is in, essentially invalid. All right, that's the, the, I wish I was smarter. That's the best I can do with that one. Uh, so the third reason to believe in a good God, despite suffering in this world, is the existence of morality and the way that it invalidates the argument against him. Number four, it's all uphill from here, guys. Number four, heaven. There are certain good things in your life that you cannot understand or experience without suffering. Think about one of your favorite heroes from history, just a... a, a an enormous, powerful human being. <clears throat> now, what makes that person great? Think about it. Now, I want you to remove all of the suffering from their life, all of the evil from their life, everything they've had to overcome from their life. Is that person a great person anymore? Is that person a hero anymore? No. Because without at least the possibility of suffering in 
and evil in this world, you would no longer see courage in the face of danger. It just wouldn't exist. You would not see anyone standing against injustice. You would not see compassion and empathy. There'd be no need for it. You would not see anyone with a willingness to persevere through difficulty. Those things simply would not exist. We would not, would not see them, nor understand them, nor experience them <coughs> in a world without suffering and evil. All right. So, there are some good things that are only possible in a world that includes at least the possibility of suffering and evil. Here's Vince Vitale again. If God values all of these good things, then it would not be surprising for him to allow us to exist at one time in a world that includes the possibility of suffering, and then at another time in a redeemed world where suffering will be forever defeated. And if suffering pains God as it would any loving parent, then it would also not be surprising if God set things up so that the portion of our lives that includes suffering could be much shorter than the portion that does not. In both respects, this is precisely what Christianity claims. So according to the Bible, the hope of heaven is that God takes us out of suffering forever. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things will be gone forever. And so you sort of imagine eternity is, um, if, imagine you're driving from the West Coast to the East Coast. I can't even, I can barely take the drive to North Carolina where I've got family. But imagine that you're doing the whole, the whole drive from Los Angeles to Boston. And when you leave Los Angeles, you stick a tape measure out your window. And as you drive the miles for the next couple days, the tape measure is just flying out the window past you. It's just going, 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 going. When you were done with that trip, if you were to just look at the first little tick mark on that measuring tape, that would be your life on earth. And the rest of it would not even begin to show you how long eternity is. God has set up this world in such a way that we experience pain and suffering for this much of our existence. And then we are pulled out of suffering for the rest of it. Now that's not to minimize what you're experiencing today, but it is to try to gain perspective on what you're experiencing today. So if you're hurting today, you know, if you're in the middle of it today, this is probably a really tough message for you because you're like, bro, I don't need your philosophical reasons. I'm in the middle of it. But if you're in the middle of it today, here's what I want you to hear. Hope is coming. God has set things up in such a way that he will remove suffering and evil from this world. The hope of heaven also helps us to remember that there might be reasons God has for your suffering today that you just haven't thought of yet. Tim Keller is a pastor in NYC, and he says this, with time and perspective, most of us can see good reasons for at least some of the tragedy and pain that occurs in life. Why could it be possible that from God's vantage point, there are good reasons for all of them? If you have a God great and transcendent enough to be mad at because he hasn't stopped evil and suffering in this world, then you have at the same moment a God great and transcendent enough to have good reasons for allowing it to continue that you can't know. Indeed, you can't have it both ways. Most of us are so hurt and so angry, we don't want to try to think of reasons why God might allow suffering. But just because we can't see the reasons doesn't mean they're there. I'm sorry for what I'm about to do, but I just got to do this to you. When you go home later tonight and you're lying in your bed and you're about to fall asleep, you're having a great time. Netflix was wonderful. You're laying there with your head on your pillow. I want you to ask yourself this question. Are there spiders in this room? 
And you might answer back, I can't see any spiders. Just because you can't see any spiders doesn't mean there's no spiders in your room. Now, if you're willing to follow me, Spiders are a lot like God's reasons for suffering in your life. Just because you can't see them doesn't mean there aren't any. And yet most of us are so angry at God because we can't understand what he's doing. But if God is as great and transcendent as even the concept of God claims to be, then clearly there must be reasons that God has that at times that we cannot know and we cannot see. So again... Our reasons so far for believing in a good God despite suffering have been love and freedom, grace, morality, heaven. The fifth and final reason is the cross. You can write that down. Number five, the cross. This is what's so utterly unique about Christianity. Christians worship a God who is willing to suffer by our side. He could not stand to be far away in heaven judging on a throne when his kids were hurting. So he came and suffered alongside of us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus knows what it's like to get sick. Jesus knows what it's like to be chronically misunderstood by the crowds. He knows what it's like for your best friend to die in an untimely way. Jesus knows what it's like to be gossiped about, to be slandered about, to be misrepresented. Jesus knows what it's like to be betrayed by his closest confidants and followers. Jesus knows what it's like to be humiliated and exposed in front of his followers, in front of the crowds, in front of his mom. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. And this is part of the reason why the story of Jesus is so captivating whether you're a Christian or not. He's the, the ultimately good man suffering the worst pain and humiliation you can experience. It's just this ultimate story. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Jesus suffered along with those who suffer. Now, if, if you didn't grow up in the church or you're investigating Christianity, you may not understand why Jesus' death on the cross was an act of love. But um, I think there's layers to that, but one important way in which Jesus' death on the cross was love is that he came to suffer with us. He came and did the one thing that helps those, those who are actually in pain, which is to join us in the middle of our pain. He was with us. Um, there's an interesting fact about sh uh, ships and when ships sink that women are more likely to die than men. Do you know that? Do you know why? Well, they're not exactly sure why, but the best speculation is that women often have children with them. And women would rather die with their child than to save themselves if it meant their child dying without them. And so they think maybe that's why women are more likely to die. And it, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If you imagine that you're, you're on a ship and it's sinking and there's a child, maybe your child, in a compartment that's filling up with water. 
You know the child's going to die, and you, you could drop down in there with them, but you won't be able to climb back out. And, and, and the child's scared and afraid and alone. Would you jump down in there just to be with them so they're not alone? Does that sound crazy to you? I'll just tell you, as a dad, that doesn't sound crazy to me. Essentially, Jesus saw us in the sinking ship of humanity and the water-filling compartment of our lives, and he climbed down in with us so he could be with us in our pain so that we were not alone. He's with you. And then on top of that layer, you have what First Peter talks about where the righteous suffers for the unrighteous. So not only is he with you in your pain, he's also accomplishing something by his suffering, which is the forgiveness of your sins. He's also dying as a perfect sacrifice so that instead of you suffering the consequences for your sins, he suffers the consequences for your sins. And I think all of this says something really powerful about who God is and what he's like. Jesus would rather suffer with us than to sit safe in heaven without us. You know, um, in, in Buddhism, the Buddha sits with that serene smile on his face detached from the suffering of our world. You know, in, in Islam, it would be considered dishonorable for God to suffer at all. Christianity offers a very unique vision of who God is and what he's like, that he cares so deeply about his kids that he suffers with them. And I think that's a picture of love on top of love. So today we've talked about five reasons you can believe in a good God despite suffering and evil in this world. And maybe it was helpful. I'm sure some parts of it were clearer than others. Um, I hope that you walk out of here today seeing that faith is reasonable. But I would say this. My ultimate hope for you is not that you walk out of here as a more rational or thoughtful person. My hope is that you walk out of here today and when you face the evil and the suffering and the malevolence of this world in your own life, that you find hope and comfort and peace that you trust God enough to turn to him in the middle of your suffering. That you live with hope and steadfast purpose in the middle of your pain, just like Jesus did, who was steadfast in his purpose despite the suffering that it caused him. I hope that you'll trust God enough to believe that he might have good reasons for your pain, even if you can't understand them.